Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. This week, we want to go through the letter of First Peter. So first of all, just a little background on, on who Peter is. His given name was actually Simon. Okay, It was a pretty common name amongst both the Jews and the Greeks, and it was Jesus who gave him the name Peter. So in Mark 3.16, we read that he, meaning Jesus, appointed the 12, the 12 disciples, and it starts the list with Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Okay, and if we look at John 1.42, it says, Jesus looked at him, looked at Simon or Peter, and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, now Cephas was an Aramaic word meaning rock. Okay, remember, Aramaic was the language that Jesus and his disciples would have spoken, but Greek was the primary language really used throughout the Roman Empire. And of course, it's what the New Testament was written in. So the Greek word for rock is Petros. Okay, that's where we get Peter from. So Jesus names Simon Peter or Petros, meaning rock. So Peter was the rock long before there was an actor ever named the rock. Okay, so fun fact for the day. But what's interesting is that in the Gospels, Peter was really anything but a rock. Okay, he kind of had a big mouth. He was always impulsive, saying things he shouldn't have said. He denied Jesus three times. It seemed like he was kind of always getting in trouble. But Peter later became a foundation of the early church. So Jesus' name for him proved to be true over time. Now, a few other things about Peter. He was a native of Bethsaida, which was a town on the north side of, of the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember Peter and his brother Andrew, they were fishermen when Jesus called them to, to be his disciples, to follow him. So as a, as a Jewish boy, Peter would have received a, a standard education, a standard elementary education. So in Acts 4.13, it refers to Peter and John as uneducated, unschooled men. Okay, I think many of us are familiar with this passage, but that, that refers to the fact that Peter had never gone through the advanced training of the rabbinic schools. Okay, he wasn't a, an official rabbi. He wasn't a quote-unquote professional. But it doesn't mean that he was completely uneducated. It doesn't mean that he was unintelligent by any means. But he was, he was a layman, so to speak. Now, Peter was part of Jesus' inner circle. Okay, Remember, Jesus had 12 disciples, but he was especially close to three of them. It was Peter, James, and John. Those three, there were certain miracles that only those three got to witness. Certain times when, when Jesus raised somebody from, from the dead or the transfiguration when, when Jesus appeared in all of his glory, those three were the ones who got to witness some of those key miracles. So he was part of the inner circle of Jesus. I think it's fair to say that Peter was kind of the spokesperson of the disciples. It wasn't necessarily always a good thing, 
but he, he was very outspoken and sort of the, the leader of, of the disciples. Now, after Jesus rises again and he ascends into heaven, Peter changes. Okay, we see a very dramatic change in him. Remember, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit on the believers during Pentecost. And Peter, after being filled with the Spirit, he stands up and he preaches the first quote-unquote Christian sermon. And 3,000 people are saved that day. And the church is born. And at that point, Peter becomes a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. Now, decades later, probably in the early 60s AD, he writes a letter. Okay, and this is what we know as First Peter. And he writes this from the city of Rome to believers in Asia Minor. Okay, so modern-day Turkey. And this was likely a, a circular letter, so it was meant to be uh, passed around. And his audience was likely predominantly Gentile, so non-Jewish. Now, there were undoubtedly some Jewish people in there as well. He's writing to churches in Asia Minor. He's writing to believers in Asia Minor, most of whom were, were Gentiles, but undoubtedly there were a few Jewish people mixed in as well. But regardless, the, the churches, the believers in this area at this time, they were facing persecution. So Peter is trying to give them hope and encouragement in the face of suffering. So I want to cover a few key points about this letter, and then I want to go over a, a difficult passage in this letter that tends to, to trip people up a little bit. So first, a, a few key points, just some, some general ideas about this letter. First of all, you're going to notice that he refers to his readers as exiles, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Okay, so you see some of these terms. These are Old Testament terms. In fact, there are a lot of references to the Old Testament here in this letter. I believe there are about 41 total references to the Old Testament in this letter. And it's not a very long letter. Okay, so a lot of Old Testament here. But these are terms that are usually reserved for Jewish people, for the Israelites. But Peter is addressing believers in general in this letter. Remember we said his audience is predominantly Gentile. So he is demonstrating by using these terms that Jews and Gentiles now have unity in Jesus Christ. We're now all part of the one family of God. Okay, it's no more Jews over here, Gentiles over there. No, we're all part of one family. So he's encouraging these suffering, mostly non-Jewish believers that, you know what? You're part of God's family. These promises, God's promises apply to you. So that's one thing to note. Another thing to note is that Peter uses the term exiles. He uses it right at the beginning of the letter in the first verse, the opening line. He says, to those who are elect exiles. Now, he's not speaking of a literal exile here. Like we think of when we think of the, the Old Testament, how God's people were exiled from the promised land, you know, taken into Babylon. He's not talking about that kind of literal exile here, but there's a sense in which believers are foreigners in this world, right? This isn't our ultimate home. We're awaiting our, our ultimate home, the new heavens and the new earth. That's our ultimate home. So we should be distinct from the world in some way. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be walled off from the world, but it does mean that our hope and our identity is, is separate from the world, and with that, we should abstain from the passions of the world and the flesh. We should look different from the world in some way because our hope is different than the world's. 
All right, so just wanted to, to clarify that. Now, another key theme here in this letter is suffering. That's, that's at the heart of this letter. The reality is, as Peter tells us, you know what, we're going to face opposition as Christians. But he also makes it pretty clear that suffering purifies us in a way. Suffering helps us grow. Now, I know we don't like that, but that's reality. We grow through trials. Suffering and difficult circumstances help keep us from putting our hope in the wrong places. Remember, we're just exiles passing through. So our hope shouldn't be in the things of this world. Suffering helps us grow and keep our eyes focused on Christ. Now, at times, suffering may seem unjust, right? We all have times when we question, why did this have to happen? Why did I have to go through this? But Peter tells us something in this letter, and I want you to remember this. Jesus himself was unjustly persecuted and murdered. Think about that. God himself, the creator of everything, he came to earth. And guess what? He was unjustly persecuted and murdered. Peter says this. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In chapter 2, verse 21, he says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You know, what is the best way to demonstrate a suffering savior to the world? It's through suffering. There's a sense that when we demonstrate love and generosity to the world, even in the midst of suffering and and difficult circumstances, we help point people to the radical love of Jesus. Jesus suffered for us, and we are going to suffer in this life. That is a given. But Peter reminds us, you know what? One, your suffering is going to help you grow and become more like Christ. It's going to help purify you. And your suffering can help be a witness to the world. It can help demonstrate Christ's love to the world. And then on top of that, and this is the next point, he says in chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, we're just exiles. We're just foreigners. One day, all suffering will end. All things will be made right. And there will be no more pain or suffering or disease or death. An eternal perspective changes everything. And that's really Peter's point here. He's saying that, you know what? Yes, we are going to suffer in this life. But one day, all things will be made right. And the suffering that we face now is incomparable to the glory that's going to one day be revealed when Jesus returns. So just to summarize this letter, some a few key points. Remember, we're just exiles passing through this life. This isn't our ultimate home. And another point, expect suffering. Jesus himself, God himself, suffered in this life. But understand, suffering purifies us. It helps us grow. And it increases our witness to Jesus. It increases our witness to the gospel. And in the midst of suffering, remember Again, this isn't our home. This isn't our ultimate destination. One day, all things will be made right. So set your hope fully on that, fully on eternity. So now at this point, I want to transition a little bit. I want to cover a difficult passage in this letter. It's found in chapter 3, and it starts in verse 18, and it goes through verse 22. Okay, so I want to read the passage 
first. Before we break it down, just to help give us a little bit of context, you may just be listening to this without a Bible in front of you. So I just want to read it first, just to give us some context. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now that's a lot. There's a lot in that passage, and we can't get into all of it, but I want to give you kind of a big picture here. It says, when Christ died, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And these spirits, it says, formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay, now what in the world does that mean? What is he talking about here? Well, there's a few different views that theologians have had throughout the years. Some say that this passage refers to Christ preaching through Noah to the people who lived during Noah's day while he was building the ark. Okay, so this view says that Jesus wasn't personally present, but he spoke through Noah via the Holy Spirit. And this view also says that this phrase, spirits in prison, refers to people who are trapped in sin, okay, to, to the sinners that Noah was preaching to. So that's one view. Another view says that this refers to Old Testament saints who, who died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. Okay, so that's, that's another view that this is talking about Old Testament saints. Another view is that the imprisoned spirits are sinful human beings who perished during Noah's flood and that Christ descended to hell after his death to offer an opportunity to them to repent. So basically, Jesus was giving sinful human beings another chance to repent. A fourth view, and this this view is the most common among scholars and seems to be most likely based on the text. This view says that Jesus was proclaiming victory over evil angels or, or evil spiritual beings. Now, a little bit more about this. Now, Genesis 6-4, if you go back and, and read that passage, Genesis 6-4 seems to describe angels or, or spiritual beings who had sexual relations with human women. Okay, It seems then that in response to this, these angels were, were judged by God and imprisoned. So in the book of Jude, we read, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, i.e. The, the spiritual realm, those angels he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, a very similar statement to this is also found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. So it seems there were angels or spiritual beings who left 
their proper realm, so to speak, the, the spiritual realm, and they sinned. They came into the physical realm and had sexual relations with women. And now, as a result of that, the consequence of that is they are facing eternal imprisonment and judgment. So in this view, these spirits that Jesus is preaching to are these evil spiritual beings, these evil angels, demonic forces, whatever you want to refer to them as. He is proclaiming victory over them after his death and resurrection. Now, there's a few reasons why this is most likely what Peter is referring to. First, the the wording that he uses here, this phrase, in which, it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That phrase, in which, refers back to Jesus being made alive in the spirit. Okay, so it's talking about a time when Jesus was made alive again. It seems to be pretty clearly referring to a post-resurrection event. Not the time of Noah and probably not the time between his death and resurrection. Okay, so that's one reason. The wording here seems to be referring to a post-resurrection event. Second reason is that this word here for spirits more commonly refers to angels or spiritual beings than human beings. And this plural form of the word here, spirits, refers to angels in the New Testament almost without exception. And if you think about it, in context, it, it wouldn't really make sense for Peter writing to these persecuted Christians to say something like, well, the, the evil people got a second chance. It makes a lot more sense for Peter to say that Jesus has proclaimed victory over evil. He's saying to these believers he's writing to, you may be suffering now, but remember something. Remember, Jesus has already won. And that interpretation fits in well with verse 22, which says, angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him, to Jesus. So what Peter is saying here is that Jesus went and proclaimed victory over evil and over demonic forces. Okay, that's what he's getting at. Now, what about the baptism part of this passage? Right, because Peter suddenly seems to to transition to talking about baptism, and that part can get kind of confusing too. So first, he's talking about how Noah and his family were saved by the ark. And then he says baptism, which corresponds to this, talking about Noah and his family on the ark. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What's he talking about? Well, remember the floodwaters, the the floodwaters in, in Noah's flood, they brought death to the ancient world. And baptism as Paul talks about in Romans 6, going under the water, we practice baptism by immersion, going under the water represents the old self, your old self, dying. You have died with Christ. But just as Noah and his family were saved, so too those who are believers in Christ have been lifted from the water and have been raised to new life. Okay, so that's kind of the reference he's making here, but we have to be clear. He says something here that can trip people up. He says that baptism now saves you. Okay, now this doesn't mean that the physical action of baptism saves us. That's that's not at all what Peter has in mind here. Because we can see pretty clearly elsewhere in Scripture that Peter ties salvation directly to faith in Christ. And he actually clarifies what he's saying here if we continue on to the next phrase. He says, 
baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. He's saying the physical act itself doesn't actually purify us from sins. But he says what saves us is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So when we ask God on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection to give us a, a clear conscience and to forgive us our sins, God will honor that. So faith in Christ is what saves us. Making an appeal to God, crying out to God to save us, saving faith, that is what gives us salvation. And baptism is a picture of that. Okay, so let let me try to wrap this all together and, and bring us home here. Remember, Peter is encouraging suffering Christians. Okay, he's calling them to persevere through through their trials. And he's saying Jesus has already won. You might be experiencing suffering, but remember, Jesus has already won the victory and he proclaimed victory over evil. And he's also saying, remember what baptism represents. By being baptized, you're marked, you're identified as one of God's redeemed, who, like Noah and his family, will be saved even, even when everyone else around them mocks them and slanders them. Baptism is a a symbol that we've been united with Christ. And that means that we too have victory over death and evil and principalities and and powers through Jesus. So I want to encourage you. Whatever you're going through, find hope. Find hope. Jesus has already won the victory for us. And that is what 1 Peter is all about.